0: This message is a recording from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space to practice the ways of Jesus together as the multi-ethnic family of God. Good evening, Kaleo. Good to see you all again. My name's Chris. If we haven't met, glad to be with you, glad to be here, glad to be gathered together on another Sunday evening Um, As you maybe heard us allude to or you've caught via social media or a conversation with someone or email, whatever it might be, in the weeks leading up to Ash Wednesday, which is a little ways away here, we're going to be going through the sermons of Martin Luther King Jr., kind of carrying the theme of MLK Sunday into Black History Month, into Lent, and so we'll kind of Tie all those things together. What we're doing is we're using his book, which is called Strength to Love. It's a collection of sermons that he kind of uh, parsed down to make readable because he actually didn't want to write the book. Uh, He (laughs) believes sermons were meant to be heard and not read. And so finally people were like, hey, man, everybody's asking for your sermons all over the world could you make them kind of accessible? So he said, all right. He took a year, took some of those key sermons and turned them into this book called Strength to Love. And so we'll kind of use it as our guide as we uh, preach. We'll kind of see what Dr. King was saying at whatever time that sermon was preached. We'll do, we'll do our best to discern then what that might mean for the Kaleo community as we, in fact, create space to practice the ways of Jesus together as the multi-ethnic family of God. And we'll see where all of that takes us. Uh, A couple maybe caveats up front to think about, especially as I'm standing here this evening, that the majority of the sermons from Strength or Love were preached at churches, often churches in Birmingham or Atlanta where Dr. King was a pastor. So they were in a context where he was their pastor and he was preaching. Uh, It's also important because it was in the age of segregation that he was preaching these sermons so the majority of these sermons as you encounter them in the text were preached to a predominantly black audience so you kind of thinking about where where the language was being directed And then certainly in the grand scheme of Dr. King's rise and his work in the civil rights movement, non-black people began to hear or find snippets of sermons. They might have shown up in places where he was preaching these themes or preaching these messages. He definitely used some of the sermons in Strength to Love in multiple places on multiple occasions. And so it began to expand a little bit. And then on top of that, I think it's important to just keep note that Dr. King didn't intend for this prophetic preaching that he was doing to fall only on the ears of black people. He actually had a message for everybody, especially in the age of civil rights. And so it's important to remember, though, that these sermons came from the mouth of a black preacher who was murdered for his prophetic words and work. There's something heavy to that as well. There's something that places us in the context of those words. So as I share with us, the final caveat that I'd like to acknowledge is that the reality that my learning from the life and the words of Dr. King and my discerning how to preach those for the Kaleo community is done from the vantage point of my own whiteness. My role as a white educated male, so that encountering these sermons in a certain way, I hope that over time and uh, my own work in the world has positioned me to see how they might be projecting into the type of community I seek to lead and be a part of as well. And, And my privilege reminds me then that I have to find myself humbly in the places where people have their backs against the wall, which is exactly where King found himself shouting from It's Thurman who teaches us that location, and so I'm speaking as one who's seeking to situate myself among any who find themselves with their backs against the wall, discerning the way in which King might call us to prophetic action in the world, not just as single individuals, but as what he would have deemed the beloved community or what we often call the multi-ethnic family of God, and so that's where we're coming from. In all of this. And I believe that the words of King, which are always right on top of the words of Jesus, will still challenge us, inspire us, convict us, encourage us, uh, disarm us, send us reeling, have us throw our hands up in praise, like in all of these ways, because we are here uniquely positioned as people who are collectively seeking to embody the beloved community that Dr. King believed would in fact be the redemption and reconciliation that would heal all of us. So that's what we're after. So enough with the caveats and the introductions. Let let me pray and we'll see how the spirit might use Martin Luther King Jr.'s Sermon Love in Action to teach us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, again, we are here today with you. We acknowledge that your presence of love is among us and with us, and there's nothing we have to do to try to convince you to join us. And so would you give us eyes to see you, ears to hear you, hearts to experience you, minds to know you? Would you stir in our hearts and our lives? Would you draw us into this vision that you've had for God's people all along to be this beloved community? Would you call us to repentance where we need to repent? Would you call us to celebration where we need to celebrate? Would you help us discern what it is you have for us as a community of people during this time? And God, on this particular Sunday, would you give me your words to speak words that are for you and from you, make much of you, and draw us deeper into your loving presence. We love you so much. We need you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's do this, okay? It's believed that this sermon, Love in Action, was preached by Dr. King sometime around 1960, made its way into the book a little bit later. He worked on this message a few different times, and he chose one stunning verse to orient this message. And then he begins to prophetically break it down in three parts, quintessential Baptist preacher still even then. And so no sense in messing with that format. I'll follow along with that, but first let's take a look at the verse. He Then Jesus said... Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. What a single verse to craft a sermon around. Now, as you may realize at this point, if you're familiar with that verse, or you start opening up a Bible and looking around where it's positioned in Luke 23, 34, you realize that these are words that Jesus uttered from the cross he had just been nailed to. Imagery-wise, I found myself sitting over there while we were singing, and I just looked up right there at that stained glass, and there's Jesus. From that vantage point, he utters these words. These are words Jesus spoke looking down at those who were crucifying him. These are words pushed forth from the throat of a dying man in the presence of his murderers. This moment in the life of Jesus, King claims, is love at its best. And I don't think any other words or prayer captures the spirit of Jesus quite like this either. But what is the meaning of such a witness, of such words pushed out in one's final breath of life? King stops us, though, at the first word of this verse. Then. Then, following the steps leading to his crucifixion, sounded surrounded by those doing the deeds, Jesus was at the end and he could have uttered any number of words from that vantage point. The word then signifies all that Jesus was enduring at that moment on the cross, plunged into agony, abandoned and alone, humanity at its worst, crucifying this man. It is then Jesus prays to his father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. This, King says, is love at its best. And I agree with King's assessment, but the Conviction in the context of King's statement shouldn't be lost on us either. As he notes in his sermon, Jesus could have said, Father, get even with them. Or Father, let loose the mighty thunderbolts of righteous wrath and destroy them. Or Father, open the floodgates of justice and permit the staggering avalanche of retribution to pour upon them. It seems to me that Dr. King and those following and striving alongside of him might have longed to see God do such things as that. Maybe they even had prayed for it to be so. But if that was so, if that's what Jesus had said, then it would not have been, in King's estimation, love at its best. He says about Jesus, those subjected to inexpressible agony, suffering excruciating pain, and despised and rejected, nevertheless, he cried, Father, forgive them. King has two lessons for us from this passage. First, we encounter the ultimate expression of Jesus' ability to match words with actions. The embodiment in Jesus was a key inspiration in the life of King because one of his biggest frustration he claimed one of the great tragedies of life is that people seldom bridge the gulf between practice and profession between doing and saying. It's a surprise twist, but Jesus's example of consistently blending word and deed is evidenced in his passionate pursuit of the strange doctrine of forgiveness. It's so strange, in fact, that one of his most committed followers was trying to keep statistical tabs on the limits of forgiveness. The disciple's name was Peter, and Peter wanted to know, how should I forgive someone who sins against me? How many times? Seven times, Peter thought? Good biblical number. No, Jesus said, 70 times seven. Or as King reminds us, forgiveness is not a matter of quantity, but quality. And King helps us take a revolutionary concept and turn it practical. Because again, I think that if we orient the person of Dr. King and when he was preaching and where he was preaching and what he was preaching, that he's leaning so heavy into forgiveness should at least cause us to pay attention to this Jesus he was following. He teaches us that a person cannot forgive 490 times, right? 70 times 7 without forgiveness becoming a part of the habit structure of their being. Forgiveness, King says, is not an occasional act. It is a permanent attitude. And what I see as an uncommon challenge from the nation's most famous justice warrior, forgiveness must become a spiritual habit. Think about King practicing the spiritual habit of forgiveness. Forgiveness. I mean, I can't even necessarily comprehend such a thing as that. If we pause for a moment and we think of the extremes of Jesus' suffering and of King's suffering, to form a spiritual habit of forgiveness is nothing short of revolutionary love. Like Jesus on the cross, when stretched by the injustice of the world, what will be revealed within us? Will it be love and forgiveness? In the words of King, Jesus eloquently affirmed from the cross a higher law. He knew that the old eye for an eye philosophy would leave everyone blind. He did not seek to overcome evil with evil. He overcame evil with good. Although crucified by hate, he responded with what King calls aggressive love. He goes on preaching. What a magnificent lesson. Generations will rise and fall. Humanity will continue to worship the God of revenge and bow before the altar of retaliation. But ever and again, this noble lesson of Calvary will be a nagging reminder that only goodness can drive out evil and only love can conquer hate. But not just any old goodness and love the kind that resists the ugly and ever-recurring song of retaliation and revenge. How did King do it? By cultivating a spiritual habit of forgiveness, which again is beyond my comprehension, but so it is the direction he followed. So the first lesson from this passage is the power of loving forgiveness, and the second is this, Jesus' prayer on the cross, King says, is is an expression of his awareness of humanity's intellectual and spiritual blindness. King says this, We must recognize that Jesus was nailed to the cross not simply by sin but also by blindness. They did not know what they were doing. As King continues to flip badness into blindness, I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul's origin story. Paul, if you're familiar with him, was originally named Saul. And Saul, King says about, because that's not necessarily the narrative we've always thought of about Saul. As King says, he was a sincere, conscientious devotee of Israel's faith. He thought he was right. He persecuted Christians not because he was devoid of integrity, but because he was devoid of enlightenment. In fact, Saul, who becomes Paul, embodies the complexities of spiritual blindness when he encounters the convicting words of Jesus. Jesus asks Paul in a beam of light, Why are you persecuting me? And what happens to Paul? He goes, Blind. Paul goes blind. And then, like King invites us to do, Paul says, okay, let's go. Where are you leading me? And he eventually is able to see differently. The light of the world has enlightened him and seeks to enlighten us. But the history of this tragic blindness is the besetting sin of inexpressible tragedies from the beginning of time. As Jesus said, they know not what they many will be. And just as it is, as it was in King's day, the tragic blindness continues to express itself in many ominous ways today. Dr. King consistently preached against what he called the three evils of society, racism, capitalism, and militarism, or racism, poverty, and war, and even witnessed how they continued to shapeshift under the doctrine of white supremacy. Like him, we've continued to watch racism, poverty, and war morph into new dimensions of evil. In fact, King bemoans in this sermon, Love in Action, how humanity conveniently twisted the insights of religion, science, and philosophy to give sanction to the doctrine of white supremacy. Which even just like as a pause, you know, in the last handful of years, maybe since Ferguson, it's become more in vogue to talk about white supremacy or learn about it or understand it This is 1960 when King is talking about it. He's using that language. He's trying to teach us, and this is why we must go back and continue to learn from history. This is the language of Dr. King as well. And so where did this lead? He says, as the idea of white supremacy was embedded in every textbook and preached in practically every pulpit, King is saying this in 1960. He said, it became a structured part of the culture. And people then embraced this philosophy, not as a rationalization of a lie, but as the expression of a final truth. They sincerely came to believe that the Negro was inferior by nature and that slavery was ordained ordained by God. He's talking about how far back such a structure goes. This is, again, why we must engage history and learn to understand where we've come from so that we might learn from it. King claims slavery in America was not solely the result of human badness, but also human blindness, which honestly is a stark observation. Like if we let that sink in for a moment, I think if you're like me anyway, I would like to just go with badness and be mad at badness. He describes it like this. People convinced themselves that a system, they formulated elaborate theories of racial superiority, and this tragic attempt to give moral sanction to an economically profitable system gave birth to the doctrine of white supremacy. Such white supremacist slavery morphed to Jim Crow and segregation, the war on drugs, mass incarceration, which is the new Jim Crow, then to mass deportation of immigrants to ongoing racial profiling to the prevalence of gun violence, and on it goes. Morphine still, which isn't even a full list of the morphs. In fact, such tragic blindness was again fleshed out last night was fleshed out in a mass shooting of the predominantly Asian community of Monterey Park near L.A. as they celebrated the Lunar New Year. Might not even have heard about this yet. Last I saw, 10 had been killed. Over 12 were wounded. And it was the most violent massacre of Chinese people in Los Angeles since 1871 and the wider U.S. since the late 19th century. And as King quotes in this sermon all these years ago, he says, there are still many who sincerely feel that being disarmed is an evil. How many guns will it take? How many killings will it take? He's literally talking about the state of war in the world and that people are like, you cannot take our weapons. We're in a new era of racism and violence. We cannot unsee what we have now seen. You can't be around Kaleo long and unsee what you've seen either. As Michelle Alexander wrote in her groundbreaking book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, the leading voice on helping us pay attention to the prison industrial complex, She says the political strategy of divide, demonize, and conquer has worked for centuries in the United States. Since the days of slavery. To keep poor and working people angry at and fearful of one another. Rather than uniting to challenge unjust political and economic systems. At times the tactics of white supremacy have led to open warfare. Other times the divisions and conflicts are less visible yet lurk beneath the surface. They know not what they do, Jesus said. Blindness was like all the generations to follow the moment Jesus uttered that from the cross, they're besetting trouble. And like all of history, such evils have been sought to be rationally explained and morally justified so nothing will be done about the injustice. And so again, I say once we learn to see Let us not unsee what we've seen. And this is why in King's final point, he preached, sincerity and conscientiousness in themselves are not enough. In fact, he prophesies only through the bringing together of the head and heart, intelligence and goodness shall people rise to a fulfillment of their true nature. And here Dr. King starts to issue the challenge to the church. And in his sermons, as I was reading through them, trying to search of his preaching in any non-black church, it's as if he keeps in mind all along that beloved community is in fact possible, and so he speaks to a global church consistently. He loops them together. And he says this, he says, As the chief moral guardian of the community, the church must implore people to be good and well-intentioned and must extol virtues of kind-heartedness and conscientiousness. But somewhere along the way, the church must remind humanity, devoid of intelligence, goodness, and conscientiousness will become brutal forces leading to shameful crucifixions. Never must the church tire of reminding people that they have a moral responsibility to be intelligent. This, he says, is the church's mandate both to conquer sin and also to conquer ignorance. It seems a little scathing on the surface. It's essentially like don't be stupid here's what he says. He brings clarity to his call for intelligence when he says this. The call for intelligence is a call for open-mindedness, sound judgment, and love for truth. It is a call for people to rise above the stagnation of closed-mindedness and the paralysis of gullibility. One does not need to be a profound scholar to be open-minded nor a keen academic to engage in an assiduous pursuit of truth. Although he did put assiduous in there, therefore, in solidarity with Martin Luther King Jr., let us also then look to the cross, the way he was doing in this sermon, and be reminded that God's greatness and the redemptive power of Jesus Christ are present there. It's something I love about a building like this. Like you can't not look at the cross, right? It's there. And let us see along with him what he says is the beauty of sacrificial love and the majesty of unswerving devotion to truth. But also, as we look at the cross with King, he grieves when he sees the cross. And he states that somehow I can never turn my eyes from the cross without also realizing that it symbolizes a strange mixture of greatness and smallness, of good and evil. And as if a prayer to conclude his sermon, he says, as I, hold the uplifted, as I behold the uplifted cross, I am reminded not only of the unlimited power of God, but also the sordid weakness of humanity. I think not only of the radiance of the divine, but also the tang of the human. I am reminded not only of Christ at his best, but of humanity at their worst. And with that, may we continue to learn to pray with Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they were doing. And as we learn to pray that, may we learn the habit of loving forgiveness and refuse to fall victim to a tragic blindness. Like to give Jesus the last word. Band, you all can come up if you want and we just sit in the presence of Jesus and in light of all of that, seek him, ask him, Jesus, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to hear? What do you want me to see? Let's be with Jesus for a moment and then I'll pray. for the gift of being together. Thank you for the opportunity to pray and sing and greet one another and in a moment here, sit at the table and have a meal together. Thank you for the ongoing prophetic witness of Dr. King. Thank you for the powerful heart-bending words of Jesus uttered from the cross. In light of all of that, what's before us in this present day and age, God, would you grant us your spirit to fill us fresh with the aggressive love, if you will, that King talks about Jesus having. Would you fill us with compassion for one another, justice-oriented footsteps? Would you help us be aligned in beloved community where we have not seen hope or advancement? Would you give us eyes to see? Would you help us unlearn old ways and relearn your ways? Would you draw us to you as you draw us to one another so that we might be an embodiment even if it's just for an evening of the beloved community you've always called us to be. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. If this message encouraged you, let us know or share it with someone you know. For more information about Kaleo, visit kaleophx.com or follow us on social media at Kaleo PHX.